Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at YCharts. YCharts has this cool new feature. If you're watching on YouTube, you can take a look at the chart. If not, we have a, a link for it. And you can now break out different segments of revenue by product. So for example, we have one of iPhone revenue by Apple. And on the top pane, we show the iPhone revenue. On the bottom pane, we show the market cap of McDonald's, Accenture, Pfizer, Netflix, Intel, Wells Fargo, and Walt Disney. And the revenue for the iPhone is bigger than all those companies. Holy market moly. Cap, which is just pretty nuts when you think about it. The iPhone has more revenue than, I mean, you said it, McDonald's. McDonald's yeah, the McDonald's market cap. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, so you, can like, make these you know the phrase, stop and think about it? I mean, Barry says it a lot. In this case, I, I actually would like to pause and think about it. Are you ready to I mean, cover your paper short on Apple? No. No. Okay. You're, you're pressing the gas. Okay. All right. If you want to learn more to make charts First of like all, this. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not short. I'm not outright short on paper. I'm, I sold paper calls. Okay. You're, just, you're not a buyer. You're not a seller. All right. Uh, if you want to make more charts like this, check out this new feature. Go to White Charts. Tell them Animal Spirits sent to you. Get 20% off that initial subscription. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. You know, one of the great things about social media, sounds trivial and childish, but it's true, are the memes. Uh, there was one going around over the weekend of Kevin James. He's sort of doing a, what do you call this look, like a smirk? Just a little smirk and a shrug. And it got captured into oblivion. And one that I saw that made me literally LOL is, uh, comes from Josh Black. Me after hitting no tip and turning the tablet back around. Not bad. It, it is like the power of the internet, how something like this can just, I don't know how it builds. Also, uh, what was the show called? Not Kevin Can Wait. It was King of Queens. Uh, King of Queens, yeah. I like that show. Great show. I, I never watched, watched the, it, but great show. I, I mean, Costanza's dad from Seinfeld, I guess you never watched that either. He was you know what, played in, the same character, basically. Upon reflection, by the way, there's an Office reboot. Yeah, I'm not, not thrilled with that. I mean, The Office was, the last three or four seasons were going downhill already so the fact that they're doing another one is is not not a great sign upon self-reflection i'm not quite sure why but i missed like all the great sitcoms in the 90s except for i watched friends you know i, I maybe it's because you were too busy doing whatever in college but we would get home from class and watch all the reruns on tbs every single night seinfeld reruns would be on friends reruns would be on that's when you'd watch them and catch up and watch all the episodes yeah, I was, I guess too I was, busy taking part in extracurriculars. Extra, I can't say that word. Yeah, and uh, watching. Uh, I guess I was more like a movies and sports guy, not really a sitcom guy. Uh, but I was thinking about Twitter, and I know it's it's not in vogue to say positive things about the Bird app. I love the For You column. Really? Is that a, is that a zag? I love it. That's a big. You're the only one, I think, because no one else does. So I, I, I had complained one of my gripes about Twitter over the years. Not really a gripe, more of an observation about how lousy the business is. Was that I spend, I don't know, six hours a day on the damn thing, and it's serving me up, uh, you know, women's deodorant ads. Just has no idea who I am. 
And finally, Twitter gets me. On the, the For the, You. The For You tab is uh, just chock full of nuts. So I checked out threads for the first time in about a month last week. We, we can't post there anymore because of compliance reasons. I guess it's the, the our compliance thing that stores these social media accounts doesn't do threads yet for some reason. So we can't post there anymore. We tried. But I, I looked there, and it was basically everyone I follow on Twitter just copy and pasting their tweets That's from Twitter to threads. So I, I, I just, I'm sure there are people posting there who aren't on Twitter anymore, but I just I don't see the, the need to check two social media apps during the day. Yeah. It seems like a lot of work. How's your office? All good. No, no construction this week. There's, there's nothing going on. Hopefully, there's still all the walls are barren outside, and but I'm, I'm still hanging on here. You I know, last a, week, last week when I mentioned uh, how nothing on the internet works is advertised, all like these hacks. Somebody sent us a video about the right way to eat an apple. The guy says he eats three apples a day to the core. <laughs> really? I mean, what's the what's the right way to eat an apple? Yeah, I didn't watch the video, but from what I gathered, this person eats the apple all the way through, and the only thing left when he's done is a stem. Okay. Is that how the cavemen did it? Is that what the nutrients are? My kids make me peel the apples for them every time they eat one, which is kind of a pain in the butt. Like three apple peelers in my house. I love peel. I don't, I'm not a skin guy. One last thing before we get into the show. Speaking of uh, nutrition, I drink uh, athletic greens because believe it or not, advertising works and I feel good about it. There's a lot of, a lot of minerals and things that I don't otherwise get. Doesn't taste great. I mean, it doesn't sound good to me. Doesn't taste just great, but you know, name alone. But you know what? Something that that tastes like that, you just know it's rich, in a good way for your body. My body's the temple, Ben. I can tell, but based on your athletic gear, uh, I gotta I gotta take. I've been preheating the oven for a while now. Okay, gold me on this one. Before you just let me lay out my case before you push back, because I think you're gonna push back. We already had a soft landing. Oh, come on. I'm just kidding. Nope. I'm just okay. kidding. So I looked back the first time I wrote about a recession. It's kind of hard to believe, but it's been more than 18 months since the Russia invaded Ukraine and commodity prices spiked and inflation went above 5%. And I wrote a piece in March of 2022 saying every time inflation is spiked above 5%, the only way we've brought it down is through a recession. We talked about all this at the time. Uh, it's been 16 months since we had $5 gas, $120 oil, and 9% inflation. Since then, the unemployment rate has actually fallen. Inflation fell. Wage growth rose, then fell. GDP growth accelerated. What if we already had the soft landing? It's been a year and a half. Is that, I mean, that's a long time to be debating this. Is that not kind of a soft landing already? Didn't we already have it? How long does it have to last before we, we declare, okay, we had a soft landing? I think we so kind of did. Are you, are you saying that? That the, I'm 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 trying to squeeze a transitory joke out of this, but I'm, I'm coming up short. So I think cycles are faster anyway. I think a year and a half of of you know low unemployment, inflation falling, GDP growth accelerating. That sounds like a soft landing to me. I guess I'm where I'm crazy. going with this is this is the opposite of the transitory talk. It's like you know, 14 months into inflation remaining, you can't really say it's transitory anymore. I guess this is the opposite where it's like, we're not ready to declare a soft landing. We haven't landed. I guess what I would say is the Fed is not, the market seems to think they're probably done, but they haven't said it. They haven't necessarily said that they're done yet. And it does seem to me that there are more risks to the economy than there have been in a while between all the strikes, between uh, oil prices rising, between interest rates reaccelerating between the dollar 
reaccelerating. But you, you can't tell me that the risks are higher now than they were 18 months ago. 18 months ago, the risks were way higher. Oh, that's a fact. That's a good point. Which is, which is, that's just kind of funny. And maybe it doesn't matter, but the Fed seems to think higher for longer is the new thing. So even on the, uh, based on their projections, which their projections, I don't know, roll them up in a ball and throw them in a trash can because they're, they're worthless. But they say 2024, their Fed funds rate is going to be 5.1%. And by 2025, it's 3.9%. The thing is, I see people making two arguments. We're, the rates are going to remain higher for longer and we're going into recession. I'm sorry, but doesn't two solve one? You can't have both. I don't think yes, you, you can. Every recession we've ever had, rates have fallen. Go look. What if what if rates stay high for the next? No, that's that's true. I think if once we do get a recession, you know, the rates part will take care of itself. But what if we get what if rates stay high for another, I don't know, year or so, and then we get a recession? Can that happen? Yeah, but isn't that a soft landing though? Two and a half years of I don't know. So Cam Harvey, the who is famous for making the yield curve, uh, he was on Compound Friends before. He said the Fed is making a mistake. He, he kind of has a Jeremy Siegel, uh, Jeremy Schwartz thing where he said, if you look at shelter inflation was normalized, core inflation right now is 1.5 to 2% below the Fed's target. He basically is saying the Fed is waiting. They're, they're going way too long. And he said, the higher the rates go, the worse the recession is going to be. Here's my question. So let's say the Fed did, did want to declare victory in a way. And they said, you know what? We're not going back to ZERP. But we're going to slowly rates, slowly lower rates to 4% over the next year. We want to get to 4%. Would 4% really be the end of the world? I know stocks would probably take off and bonds would rally, but 4% is not like, in that, in that scenario, you're not going to get a bunch of refinancing from people because they all already have 3% mortgages. It just, it gives people a little bit of breathing room in terms of no more 9% car loans and no more 7% mortgage rates. It just makes them a little easier to stomach and it makes it easier for corporations to borrow, how bad would 4% really be? If the Fed said that, we're going to declare a victory, we're going to go back to 4%. Would that really risk taking away everything that they've done? Could. I don't know. I Really? How? They're still worried. I mean, inflation is still here. I just think if the Fed wanted to avoid a recession, they probably still have time. But I agree with Harvey that the, the, the longer they keep rates higher and the more they raise, they're they're almost guaranteeing us a recession at some, because at some point there's just not going to be much more investment. Corporations are going to like, they sure they short up their balance sheets and consumers short up their balance sheets, but there's just going to be, everything's going to grind to a halt going forward. Sure. The stuff. Yeah, in the what, what if there's fine. like this collective awakening where people are like, Oh shit, rates really are going to stay at 5%. And that changes, that changes the cost of capital dramatically in terms of investing in new projects. Jamie Dimon this morning, I didn't have a chance to read the article yet, but he said, I'm not sure if the world's prepared for 7%. I asked people in business, are you prepared for something like 7%? The worst case is 7% with stagflation. Now, again, I don't know why he's necessarily saying that. Um, is, it, is it okay to go contra Jamie Dimon every time he makes one of these big pronouncements? As smart as he is and as great of a CEO as he's been, he was the one who said we were in a recession in 2022 yeah. and prepare for a hurricane. His, 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 I think his track record is seven seven percent rates. If we had seven percent rates, the economy would be doing amazing in that scenario. His actual to. track record speaks for itself, but his public comments about the economy forecasting have not have not aged well. And to be fair, who's has? And look at so Mike Zaccardi posted this. Credit spreads again just don't care. So bond yields are rising. The yield curve is what's it called? Disinverting? Yeah. Is there is, there, uh, is it disinverting? Steepening. 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 Okay. The yield curve is steepening, but not for the reason people would have assumed. Most people would have thought the yield curve was going to, the longer end is going to stay where it is and short-term rates are right. going to fall. 
but instead it's longer term rates that are going is this up. Is a bull steepener? I think it's a bull steepener, but I, who can who can get and this right? No, no one predicted this. This is another thing that no one would have predicted. Like the reason the yield curve is going to the spread is going to decline is because long rates are rising. I continue to think that, boy, I, I wouldn't want to try to forecast anything over six to twelve months. But I mean, if, if you're a pension fund or an insurance company and you're seeing rates get up close to you know five percent for longer term bonds, I'm sorry. Over the short term, they could get hit a little bit. Over the long term, we're going to look back on this and think these bond yields were an amazing deal. I, well, I totally believe that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, it, we're not going to look back. We're, it's already happening. So Balchunas tweeted, people keep piling to TLT, another $750 million this week. Amazing. Can't recall an ETF taking in so much money uh, while being down so much and so consistent. So I think that investors are rightly taking advantage, locking in these high rates. And could there be more some more downside in, in price? Yeah, of course. Who knows? But I think that investors are are wisely piling into bonds here. Average yield to maturity for the ag is now 5.4%. Yeah, lock it up. Lock it when, up. I mean, I, I think every all the all the things keep saying the highest rates since 2007 for most of them across the yield curve spectrum. I don't know. Call me I I think that's a pretty darn good deal, especially relative to what we've seen in the past. Oh, it's great for investors, but it might be bad for the economy. Uh leading economic <laughs> indicators which which is Good for investors, isn't it? Aren't we setting up for the the threading the needle of this being a decent thing for investors in economic slowdown? Is it possible? Because you get high yields, and as soon as the the economy starts to turn and asset prices start to soften, the Fed is going to ease, setting them back higher. Could is be. that? Is, I don't know. Maybe that that's getting too cute with this kind of stuff, and and that that that's wishful thinking. Leading economic indicators have been negative for seventeen straight months, which I don't know if that is a record, but but it's close. So is it really that long? Jeez, uh, it's been a while. So yeah, uh, I, I'm not saying anything. And then of course, student loans coming back online, which is not n- not necessarily a drop so in the bucket. You, I want to I want to put this take by you that I've heard recently that okay. the Galaxy Brain take that higher rates are actually inflationary. Now look at this. This is a Wall Street Journal article about corporations borrowing. And they remember we talked about how uh, net interest payments. So net is net of what they're making on their cash have been falling. And we're like, why are net interest payments still falling? And they they use Microsoft as an example. You know so what? Say- we, we, we had this chart on Animal Spirits Live. And I didn't, I was like, I don't understand this from Sachin. I said, this is a great chart. I don't know what it means or how it's happening. Yes. I didn't I didn't factor in what you just said. Ne- that, I didn't know that either. So that, so, so that makes sense. So, so carry on. So they're showing Microsoft has more cash than debt. So Microsoft in T-bills now is making more interest income than they're paying on their low-rated debt. So by raising rates, the Fed has given them a raise on their cash. So they have wild. more cash than debt, which is, I'm sure, the case with a lot of these big companies, which, again, everyone keeps waiting for the Magnificent Seven to just fall and drop. And I do think it's also funny that every year we, we just add another company. It started off being Fang, and then it was like Fan Mag, and now it's Magnificent. And, and Netflix is out. Nobody talks yeah, about that. That's true. Netflix got booted. <laughs> Netflix just quietly got <laughs> removed. You know, this is what you just mentioned, Ben, is a great example of things that the textbook would say happen where you have to take into fact, you have to take into account other considerations. Like, okay, rates higher, interest payments up. Well, no, actually, not so fast. For all these companies that locked in low mortgage rates, or I'm sorry, low interest rates, right? Because they issued so much debt and have so much cash that there's actually a positive spread. 
there's nothing in the textbook that would suggest that would happen. And we're going to talk about this later in the show. Uh, same thing with with my view on on U.S. residential real estate. You would think higher prices, uh, higher interest rates, home prices down. Not so fast. And this this is the same thing for wealthy people who have all this money sitting in cash. Like they they are getting a raise, and unfortunately, I think that's that's distorting a lot of things in the economy. I wanted to look at you talked about how things have like everything looks bad right now, right? Rates are rising, the Fed is going higher for all the leading indicators and the S&P 500 is still up 14% year to date, the Nasdaq 100 is up 35%, IFA international stocks are up 8%. I don't know, wouldn't you if if you were given all the headlines this year at the be- take away what we already know about the stock market. If you're given this at the beginning of the year and said you're going to be up 15% in the stock market this year with all this negativity. Wouldn't you say, sign me up immediately? Yeah, of course. It's, so it's, it's just funny how, I, obviously, part of this is just the bounce back from last year. But it's, it's interesting that the market is still not matching sentiment, which I guess is just something we're getting used to, that the market rarely matches sentiment well, these days. I, I shared this chart with you yesterday. Since the Fed started raising rates, which I think is a blockbuster thing to do, since the Fed started raising rates, what's happened since... But since the Fed started raising rates, the median stock is not doing great, as you would probably expect, right? So I, I had Nick Majuli break down the median return by market cap decile since the Fed started raising rates in March 2022. And the median stock in the largest and second largest decile by market cap is slightly positive. But every other decile, the median stock is down. The weirdest thing to me is that the, the smallest stocks are the third best performer out of the deciles. Yeah, that is interesting. I, uh, I ran this on my own, looking backwards, and I said, this can't be right. Because the median stock, if you look at today's Russell 1000 and you do this analysis, the median stock in the last bucket is down 41%. But that's almost like self-selecting because like Peloton's in there and it's all the stocks that got crushed. Oh, they fell into that bucket. Yeah, exactly. So I said, I, I they, had my, uh, they didn't I, had, I had my Nick Majuli correct this for me. I said, hey, Nick, do this proper. And so this is what it looks like. Yeah, that's a good chart. All right. Uh, beating a dead horse here, but uh, Spiva came out with their half year report about index funds versus active funds. They look at all these categories across equities, small, mid, multi-cap, large, all the, you know, growth value. We are beating a dead horse, but go ahead. And if you look at the, the 10, 15, and 20-year numbers, it's, it's not just average returns for indexes. It's, it's top decile, basically. Across, and, and sometimes the top 5% you are being an index fund over 20 years, which again, dead horse, but is it actually becoming harder to outperform the market because of the informational advantage has been kind of taken away? I know like the, the whole argument has always been, listen, the market is active funds underperform because they are the market less cost. That I get. But I think it's actually getting harder to outperform. And it's not like you can just say, well, it's because the biggest 10 stocks carry the day. Because it's, a, it's the same thing in mid caps. It's the same thing yeah. in small caps. It's yeah. growth. It's value. It's all this stuff. I just think outperforming the market now is actually harder than it's ever been. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh... That's probably mostly true. I guess in, in defense of active management, I would say for investors in active funds that believe that their manager is going to outperform, and even if they don't, 
if, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm reaching here. If there was a behavioral edge to be had, like, and maybe this is actually, this is probably backwards. I'm trying to say that like, maybe you're more likely to stick with an active strategy if you really believe in the manager. But I think, I think empirical evidence shows that actually to probably be the opposite, right? You're more likely to bail. I think th these numbers like also sh dollar weight or dollar weight of returns. Do investors in active funds do worse relative to the funds that they invest in than index fund investors? I would say that's probably actually yes, almost definitely true. I'm sure there's some Morningstar study on that. But uh, I, I, I this, tried. I tried. But this is also probably why I think thematic funds are going to continue to see groundswell and see assets go into them and, and why people are sticking with a fund like ARC because they believe in this innovation idea. And I think the thematic that's like the new active and it's going to take a while for that to filter through. But I, I think that's, that's probably where most of the growth comes for active in the years ahead. All right. You had Jeremy Grantham on the compound friends, which was great because I still disagree with a lot of what he says and his view of the world, but, uh, he's not a psychopath about it. He has good reasoning and he's a smart, sharp guy for how old is he again? Did you say 84? 84. So I wanted to pull up, you wrote about this yesterday. I wanted to pull up his, you sent me this clip about him talking about a real estate bubble. Wait, he before said, you get there, I, I just want to, just one thing. So I got to say, uh, interviewing Jeremy Grantham was definitely like one of the highlights of my career. Uh, even though we've written with a critical eye about him and what he said, that he's a gentleman. And I, I knew that he was before the show and he's a legend. And yeah, how could you I not think, respect the guy? Yeah. I think the perma bear moniker, um, is a little bit of recency bias. And I'm not saying that it hasn't been somewhat earned because he's been definitely cautious to outright bearish much of the last decade over certain times. But the guy's been around since 1969 and he has an incredible track record and he's very, very thoughtful. He's not just a guy that wants to see the world burn. And we got a lot of comments like the one I'm about to read. Uh, I just finished listening to episode 110 uh, of TKF with Josh. Okay, Jeremy Grantham, man, it was so good. I always thought of Grantham as a perma bear. But listening to this episode completely changed my mind. Grantham's data-driven process, the way he thinks about investing, and the way he articulates his thoughts totally changed my perspective. And I couldn't agree more. Like if you, I, I get it. Believe me, I get it. But if you listen to him, he's he's probably not what you think he is. No. He has like, he has an idea. He's built up this philosophy and this, this model of the way the world works. And unfortunately, the world hasn't really agreed to those models lately. And I, I feel it, it felt like, you guys talking to him where he was kind of going back and forth thinking through like, do I still believe that these models work? And, and it was interesting to see the back and forth. So I, I wanted to bring up the housing bubble stuff because he talked about a global housing bubble and he mentioned Toronto and China and, and Vancouver and all these places. And I actually, I'm, I think it's, it's really, really hard to call a bubble while you're in it. I, I'm not, I'm no good at that kind of stuff. But he mentioned like two or three times income for, and no one can afford a house. And I do agree that there are places like this around the world, but I don't think those, those conditions are being met in the United States. I think in places like Canada and Australia, in the United Kingdom, like if you look at, I did all these charts of since 1990, real housing price growth versus real disposable income. And we did this for Canada a couple weeks ago. So I just did yeah. it for all these other countries too. The Japan one is crazy. Look at the Japan one. Uh, same with South Korea because this starts in 1990, which is when the Japan bubble burst and real housing prices are are down by whatever, 50% and income has risen a little bit. That's because their bubble is so out of control. But the United States in Germany, I guess you could say, are the ones that are that look, you know, actually reasonable 
in terms of income growth versus housing price growth, but places like Canada, Australia, France, UK, those ones are the ones where I plus you not only do you have housing price growth that's way outpaced income, but you have the variable mortgages in a lot of these places. So the US doesn't have a lot of that stuff, right? We've people have done okay. People locked in rates. 38% of people own their homes outright and are not. So I think I, I would if I'm picking bubbles. The U.S. would be way down the line in terms of housing markets for seeing a huge price decline, and I would think it makes way more sense in places like Canada and Australia. And actually, at the end of the year, the last nine months of the year, on a real basis, Canadian housing prices fell twenty percent last year. Oh, they did. Yeah, which is, I mean, a lot of that's inflation, obviously, but they they are falling a little bit. And so, I think if there is a housing bubble, it's internationally. It's not in the U.S. Well, let me ask you this: if if he is right and housing prices, because I think I said like. What do you think is going to happen to housing prices? Like down thirty percent? I think you said that that's fair. Let's just assume that housing prices did fall by twenty percent, thirty percent. Would that lead to? Would that like take the economy to its knees? I don't really think so because there's such a big margin of safety built up in home equity right now. Already, I think I think I looked at this before. If, if housing prices fell twenty percent, it would bring us back to like October twenty twenty one, if I recall. And it's not as if it's not as if there's now I know houses are a levered product, but it's not like people are levered to the hilt. See what I did there? There you go. Nailed it. Uh, you know, with multiple houses and a debt to income that is even remotely resembling the pre-GFC days. It was also we went on a building binge in the two thousands and we, we didn't have that this time around. So I still think supply remaining constrained. I got to imagine if housing prices did start to fall, like the demand would pick up really quickly. Yeah. And, so, and if housing right, prices I, were falling, you'd, you'd think rates were falling too. And I think that there's a floor under housing prices. So I, I, I really do. So I wrote a blog post yesterday and I said that similar to the, the example that you gave with Microsoft and rising interest rates actually helping their net interest expense, I think that if interest rates were to even budge a little bit lower, you would see housing activity take off like a rocket ship. So Fortune didn't wrote an article, House Poor is Back, where they said monthly mortgage payments are up 60% year over year, which is you know obviously nuts. More than half of home buyers face a monthly mortgage payment of at least two grand, while one in four are paying $3,000 or more. Meanwhile, average US monthly earnings were just 4,600, uh, according to economic data. That means that some homeowners could be spending more than 6% of their paychecks on, on a mortgage. All right, well, if it's two incomes, that's more like 30%, but still. Based on current mortgage rates, average income levels, and home prices, more first-time home buyers are using a minimal down payment. They could be paying more than 40% of their monthly income towards housing. Uh, somebody was quoted, and this is what I was just alluding to, any relief in mortgage rates is likely to get absorbed by even higher home prices. So there's, I mean, the housing market is absolutely broken. It is. But, but it's, it's structural. Everyone is trapped in their house. Would-be movers are not moving because if you have a 3% mortgage, you just, you're not moving. You're, you're stuck. And then also, and I think this is probably like a minor, maybe not so minor thing. They said 40% of people under 30 were getting help from their parents. So there's 84 million millennials. I don't know how many are in a home, but a lot of them need to go into a home. And so uh, could this, could the great wealth transfer and that issue put a, a relatively high floor on their prices? I think it could. 
right? Hey, mom and dad, don't wait to give me this money until you pass away and it's an inheritance. Give it to me now so I can actually buy a home right. and afford it. Right. Which, which unfortunately makes a wider gap between the haves and the have-nots. Yes. But I think that's, that's what's been happening in the housing market for a while. The, the funny thing is, too, we talked about the, the Fed raising rates so aggressively. I tweeted this last week and I showed rates going from everything 30 years and below at one point was under 1%. And now, you know, everything is, is 5% or more or approaching 5%. And I said, it's kind of crazy. Nothing is broken. And a lot of people came back and said, well, the housing market is broken. But totally. I, think, I think nothing broke like people thought it would break. In ter- when people would assume mortgage rates going from three to seven and a half, you would have assumed, okay, housing prices fall 20%. Well, I think nothing- they, people thought that it would break and cause a panic. Yeah. So that's the thing. Nothing has broken like anyone thought it would in terms of breaking, like the Fed raising so aggressively. Like, the, the, sure, the economy is going to break and and consumers are screwed and, and none, of, none of this stuff has broken like people thought. And obviously, a lot of people come in and say, hasn't broken yet. Just wait. But it's, it's coming. True. I know, but you cannot, but I, I still, this is my soft landing argument that it's, it's been going on for long enough where I think we can, we can say everything everyone thought was going to happen just didn't happen this time around. And that my friends is what complacency looks like. <laughs> uh, from Redfin, a record 26% of home buyers are looking to move to a different part of the country up from 24% a year ago and roughly 19% before the pandemic began. Where'd you go? Where did I go? Here I am. Yeah. No, I mean, on the, on the dock. Good to see you. Oh, we're in real estate. Sorry. Oh, so we skipped ahead because I was talking real estate. Yeah. All right. I'm trying to keep up here. Any thoughts on people moving, having to move? Midwest? I, I mean, I, the thing is, people keep saying that like no one can afford to buy a house now, but people are, pe- there's still activity happening. It's just not very much. I mean, a lot of people are completely frozen out. Yeah. So, Ma- Michael McDonough, we've been talking about how the average mortgage payment is up 130% since pre pandemic. So then he inverted it. So, all right, the average monthly mortgage payment, assuming 20% down current prices, is $2,300. So he flipped it. He said, how much home can you buy with a $2,300 monthly mortgage payment, assuming 20% down for a 30-year? And at the peak in 2020, or I guess when rates were at the bottom, it was you could, have, you could buy a $700,000 house. Now, with that same monthly mortgage, $400,000. I mean, what do you- the, house, the housing market is completely upside down. And what do you think people are going to do? Do you think they're going to change their expectations and go to a much lower end house or just no. eat it and pay 50% of their income for housing? They're going to eat it. They're going to eat it. Right? Yeah. Which, yeah, eventually. No, I mean, sh- surely that should lead to less disposable income, right? And the, the consumer drives the economy. So isn't this one way in which housing can slow down the economy? Yeah, unless we all just take out a bunch of credit card debt. Now, the other thing is, the other thing is like what I just mentioned. Yeah, point taken. The other thing is how many people are buying new homes relative to the whole population? Yeah, it's a very it's, small it's, percentage. It's very small. Ben, you just mentioned credit cards. We haven't done a survey in a while. I know I'm jumping around the dock. Uh, a third of Americans earning $150,000 a year or more say they're living paycheck to paycheck and many rely on credit cards to close the gap per money-wise. Now, I think, and I don't know exactly how the paycheck question was- Paycheck to paycheck. I don't know how the question was worded, but Ben just did air quotes around that. Yeah, because once you know they're they're saving, they're contributing to their four hundred one k, and then once you save and spend, you add money, right? Listen, so I think after my after my four hundred one k, and after the five twenty nine, and after private school for the kids, and yeah. after the Taylor Swift concert, I'm broke. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Right. So I also think like the rely on credit cards could be doing a lot of work in that survey. Now the headline is, oh my god, a third of Americans earning one hundred fifty grand live paycheck to paycheck, but the reality is, people might just 
I rely on a credit card. Well, I think most right. people do. Now, yes. if, if credit cards didn't exist, I wouldn't rely on it, but they do. Yes. I heard a, I heard a good, uh, probably a old wives tale, but that the, the chargers are called that because of credit cards. Did you hear this? They're trash. What a terrible team. Fair. All right, let's go back to investor behavior. Uh, okay. Uh, this is interesting. I was about to apologize to Chargers fans, but I realized that there are none. Zing. All right. Since the early 2000s, there's been a structural decline in bullish sentiment. This is interesting. That, so if you did like a moving average of this, that is funny. The you know what? Are people just not allowing themselves to get fully... These are because these are these are boomers and they've seen some shit in the in the market, and we've said, oh, you've written a lot. Oh, the boomers have had it so great, falling interest rates, rising stock prices. I mean, they also had two monster crashes. Yes, I can. I can see. I, I, I the first decade of this century, I think, really screwed a lot of people. Like I, I think like inv investors had it great, or boomers had it great. Is, is there's a lot of hindsight working there because I don't think it felt too great as they're entering like their money making years. And they see a monster crash and then all the shit that transpired after. And then as they're starting to get back to even, oh, great, we're at new highs. Finally, it's been it's been seven years and the market has finally recovered. Oh, yeah? Eat this 60% decline. Yeah, that's true. So well, I, I think I think it's like, you know, you're not going to fool me a third time. I think investors aren't allowing themselves to get like euphoric. Now I know 21 was a different story, but. This is also another example of watch what they say, watch what they do and not what they say, because. A lot of those boomers are, have increased their allocation to equities over time. Totally. So they're saying they're bearish, but they're investing like they're bullish. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right, this is interesting. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal. Title was, you might be paying too much for that index fund. Okay. Uh, State Street, last month, slashed the fee on its cheapest S&P 500 ETF. The ticker is not SPY, it's SPLG, to 0.02% making it less than a quarter of the cost of its popular SPY fund that tracks the same stocks. Uh, all right, $1,000 investment in SPLG, and that's just US, it's the S&P 500, is 20 cents a year on $1,000. Jeez. Uh, so look at this, this next chart. We're looking at total assets under management. SPY has ballooned to $400 billion. SPLG is coming up the rear. It's at 19 billion, basically up from zero in like, I don't know, 2017, maybe. If you look at the change, like the total assets under management as a percentage, over the last, uh, since pre pandemic, I think this was, SPLG is up 200%, SPY is up 42%. Now, again, this is not apples to apples because one is coming off a gigantic base. And I guess there's two things here one is just marketing. Is SPY very has the brand. S a brand, I should say, not marketing. SPY is the brand, but also it's got the assets. And I'm sure a lot of the money that's going in here is being used by, by gigantic institutions for either hedging or short-term trading. And they don't necessarily care about the expense ratio. Yeah. That is, but what I, a win I've, for investors. What a win I've for never, investors. I've honestly never heard of, I guess, I SPLG, but it makes sense that they have. It is kind of funny, though, they didn't just decide to make SPY have that same expense ratio. Like the SPLG. They don't have kind to. Of, there's no reason for, for them to slash it. I know, which is funny. Like they have SPLG to cover themselves, but you'd think that why not just make SPY two basis points? Well, why would they? Someone sent me this. We talked last week about how, what, what is easier to lose in? Gambling or trading options, day trading? Someone sent me this, this uh, infographic here. Casino gambling versus day trading. 13 out of 100 gamblers leave the casino a winner. One out of 100 day traders reliably beat the market. 
I don't know. I've never really thought about what the winning percentage is for a casino, but that's way lower than I thought. I, I would have assumed 30% maybe, 20%. Yeah, th- I think I would have too. I would guess my my winning in a casino, I don't know. I'd probably lose three times for every time I win. I'm a winner. I'm like I'm like 55 to 60% winning in blackjack. That's not possible. No one, no one ever believes me. It's true. I've had no, some you know amazing what? blackjack streaks in my life. I don't think I, I don't even think that's true because I really only play blackjack. If I play craps, I lose every single time. Just that's just what you do. At least that's what I do. But blackjack, that the the odds are not that high in the house's favor. So yeah, maybe I maybe I win four to ten you know, times. Maybe I wouldn't anymore because they changed them. They don't pay as much on the blackjack and but yeah, nobody cares. But I am. We spoke about uh, God. I love betting on sports. <laughs> what a rush, but what a kick to the pants. I had the the Ravens as the fourth leg in a relatively big parlay, not to brag. And man, that was a brutal loss, just brutal. But Thank this is to, why this Mr. is why Harbaugh. people continue to gamble because it's so much fun. Hundred, the action is the juice. Yes, and and you can you could put ten thousand dollars on a stock and not get the same emotional boost that you get from betting a hundred dollars on a blackjack hand or something. Well, yeah, because it doesn't go to zero or double. Wow. In thirty seconds, <laughs> true. That. That, but but obviously, this is why gambling will always have a, have a place because you those feelings you can't you can't recreate those. You can't replicate it. All right, uh, this is a good chart. People are rightfully annoyed about rising gas prices, and I'm this this chart doesn't really do anything to calm people's emotions, but it just happens to be a fact. As a share of income, the price of a gallon of gas is barely half of its two thousand eight levels. I put this, I tweeted this the other day that if you go to the highs in 2008, retail gas prices are down 38%. But also, why should, we, why, basis. Should, but why should we anchor to like, I mean, that is ultimately cherry picking. Yes. And I, and I did say, I, I cherry picked this data. I, I admitted it. But, yeah. um, but it is true that gas prices haven't kept up with inflation for well over a decade, which is kind of hard to believe. Yeah. But yes, cherry pick. All right. This... I've never heard of this. The Dop Gamble. Maybe this is a website you've heard of. Uh, had mm-hmm. a, had this thing on NFTs that kind of went viral. Of the 73,000 and change NFT collections that we identified, an eye-watering 69,795 of them have a market Not cap nice. of zero ETH, meaning they're worthless. So 95% of people holding an NFT collections are currently holding on to worthless investments. Even if we look at the top NFTs, value is hard to find. Starting 18% of the top collections have a floor price of zero, indicating that a significant portion of even the most prominent collections struggling to maintain demand. Uh, furthermore, 41% of the top NFTs are priced between $5 and $100. Wasn't this the easiest one to call out of anything? Just that, you know who, who, who walked away? I mean, I'm sure people made a lot of money on this and sold. Remember the Beeple guy? Didn't he sell yeah. his collection for like $70 million? I'm sure that's completely It was one painting. Or, yes. or image or whatever. Uh, so 1% of them boast a price tag of over $6,000. I mean, this, this was the easy one to, to think of. Just the, the jokes of, hey, I just right-clicked your picture and I stole it. And, and- I, I, I think that even, I think even people that were Super Bowls on NFTs, a lot of them were saying this at the time, that 99% of these collections are going to zero. I think that was like consensus even among NFT bulls. The one I really remember the most is these these ETH rocks, Ether yeah. rocks. And I remember Drew Dixon tweeted this, and he just re upped it, so I found it. And he said, there is a this Ether rock, which is literally a picture of a rock that looks like you could have drawn on Microsoft Paint, was selling for $2.2 million. And he said, what would you rather have, this, this picture of a rock or a $2.2 million house in Florida on the water with a sweet boat launch and a pool 
And, and, and obviously this was just funny money at the time, but that's the one that always stuck with me to like how crazy it was like, wait a minute. Well, honestly, why would you rather hold this stupid thing in your wallet unless you're laundering money for tax purposes or something? Also, I, so Zillow has this house, so I looked at it. So it, this was in 2021 and it was selling for two point, almost $2.3 million. Okay, so you, know, you can look up the price history. In March of 2022, this thing sold for $2.1 million. And then in January 2023, it sold for $2.3 million. And then by February, it sold for $2 million. Housing prices don't always go up. Why is there so much turnover in this house? I don't know. That's, oh, maybe the pending sale fell through. But it, it sold for less money than it was trading for at the time. Should have bought the, the pet rock or the eat rock. <laughs> I think my take on, on NFTs at the time, I, I still, I, I still, I do think there's something interesting about digital ownership. Like one of the examples that I threw out was like every time I go to a Nick game, like I don't have my, I don't have my tickets. I used to have like tickets in a box. I don't know where they went. To be able to look back and have some sort of digital ownership, digital, digital entrance. Like I think that that part yeah, of it is but interesting. Doesn't, doesn't mean it had to be worth something. And also, no, 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 no. no. I like, and, I like the idea of using it as a key to unlock. Like, yeah. Like what like we did the, with our Discord. Yeah, the community. Like you use the NFT as the key to unlock it, but that doesn't mean the NFT has to go up in price all the time and be worth 20 times what it was. So my for. my take at the time where these things were going nuts is like, how do you explain this? And I guess this was, I was trying to justify the insanity was these were people, for the most part, these were people that were ETH millionaires. And it was all funny money. It was yes. poker chips. It was credit card points, whatever you want to talk, whatever, however you want to label it. For the most part, it wasn't people depositing $200,000 of cash right. and buying these things. It was people it was, that were all- It was monopoly money. It was monopoly money. But I'm just, I'm just saying, how many of those people do you think are kicking themselves for not cashing some of that out and buying a $5 million house on the water? Now, being, being a, a cynic, and I guess a, a realistic cynic, is a lot of those people did cash out to people that were actually using real money. Yeah, true. Which is a, which is a shame. All right, so I created an AI image uh, you don't do a blog post and you have to have some little thumbnail for the social media. So I you put created a one or you, you created yeah. one. So look at under AI here. So I, I wrote a post the other day about 24 things I believe about investing and you need a little picture there for the blog and then for social media. And I didn't usually, if I have a chart, I just include the chart in there, but it didn't have anything. I told a little story about Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett. And so I said, you know what? I couldn't find a picture of them together. I'm going to create one in AI. So when an AI and I, I had to type a bunch of different things in and I wrote like Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett investing. And this what is what website did you go to? Like, whatever free AI, there a bunch of them came up. It's just like AI art generator, whatever. And this is the picture that came up. It, it, it looks cool. pretty good, but it also looks kind of weird, doesn't it? Like there's something uh, just like 3% Be off about Bezos it. Is, Bezos is dead on. Uh, Buffett looks a little bit, a little off. Yeah, but I, I tried like 10 different iterations and I'm like, oh, you know, that's actually kind of, so I, I, I've been playing around with it a little bit. Some stuff it can't, it couldn't do yet, but for something like this, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, that's great. Uh, ben, last week we spoke about nav lending. The FT did a follow-up piece. Goldman Sachs has raised more than $15 billion to buy investor stakes in private equity funds and invest in deals where buyout groups sell portfolio companies from one of their funds to another. And the latest sign of sustained support for the fast-growing, quote, secondary strategy. The opportunity set is as big as it's ever been. Uh, I don't know who they're quoting here, but um, the need for some investors to get liquidity in an asset class that typically locks money up for more than a decade has offered attractive investment opportunities. Money, now, on, I guess top I could money see, on top of money, huh? Yeah. <laughs> now, I guess I could see that from the people, from the point of view of, of new investors that are taking out old investors that want liquidity. 
But doesn't this just turn the concept of the illiquidity premium on its head? If you're bringing uh, gallons of of water to these markets, then what are we even doing here? If the whole idea is like you're locked up and therefore you're going to earn a premium for giving up liquidity, then... It used to be this... When I was back in my private equity days, it was the secondary markets, you'd buy them like 50% discounts. Like to, to offload the, the, that penalty for liquidity was a huge discount. Yeah, I bet you the discounts are not 50%. I'm sure they've, they've fallen a lot, but that, that, that's what it was back in the day, which is kind of, and that's when you'd buy like a whole fund. But it, that's kind of hard to believe that, yeah, you wouldn't have to take something. Uh, okay, here's a good one. Gen X today is significantly wealthier than boomers were at the same age. We talk about boomers having it easy. But this is adjusted for inflation, 600000 for Gen X and 500000 for boomers at the time. I think the median age is around age 50 when this happened. So, And millennials today are about equal in wealth to boomers at the same age, just over 100 k all inflation adjusted. Some people said, well, a lot of the, the inflation rate you use kind of has a lot, of, lot to do with this. But I, I don't think many people would assume Gen X has had it easier than baby boomers. Although, I mean, no one ever talks about Gen X and, and their experience and what happened to them. But, I'm sorry. These comparisons are just dumb. Why? I don't know. Like, the, okay, so what's so Gen X had it easier? They didn't. Millennials had it. Hard, I mean, who cares? Class warfare. That's, I know. I just I don't like I don't like these things. It's just it's just a way to divide us. I'm I'm I, all about bringing people together. I guess my point with all of this is, it's hard to judge a whole group like this and the individual circumstances and luck and timing. All of it is it's like anyone's personal finance experience is going to be dictated more by luck and timing than most people would love to. Yeah. The, the reason why I don't like these sort of comparisons, even though like I, I understand, I understand, you know, what we're doing here, it just creates a system of like winners and losers and people that feel bad and anger and nothing, you know, but that, that is going to happen on steroids with the housing market going forward in the future. People are going to look back at 2020 and go, you bought a house before 2020. I hate your guts. Yep. I didn't get one. Yep. I got screwed. I've, you know, there's going to be so much more of that now. I feel like with the housing market, it's going to get worse and worse and worse, unfortunately. All right. Here's another, we've talked about this before. Uh, Sonu Varghese wrote this from Carson Group, and it shows bottom 50%, 50th to 90%, 90th to 99, and top 1% by wealth. And he shows the growth in wealth from 1992 to 2006, then 2007 to 2019. And those ones go in order. The lowest people on the rung, grew the slowest, the people in the top 1% grew the fastest, except for 2020 to the first quarter of 2023. By far, the largest relative increase in wealth comes from the bottom 50%. And they more than doubled up the increase as the top 1%, the top 10%, all of this stuff. Love to see it. But is this another reason why the consumer has remained so much stronger? Is that even like the bottom 50% saw their, their net worth just skyrocket like they haven't seen in decades? Right? How how many people actually would know this fact? If you just talked to people on the street, did family feud style survey, three people out of a hundred maybe would say yeah. the bottom fifty percent has seen the biggest increase. Maybe. What do you What do you think? What do you think is more important for for sustained growth for the economy? Or or said differently, what would be worse for the economy if the top one percent came under financial pressure or the bottom fifty percent? Which is better or which is worse? Which would be worse for the economy? I think the bottom 50%. Bottom 50. Because they're spending everything. Spend a higher percentage right? of so, income. Yeah. So if, if the top 
one half of 1% is feeling the pinch. All right, they're not buying paintings. Yes, they have a much bigger margin of safety too from financial assets. And so is this an under is this an underreported or under explained aspect of why the economy remains strong? It's the bottom 50%. It's doing relatively okay. Yeah. Didn't I just say that like two minutes ago? Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Thank you. That's a good good call, coach. Coming around. <laughs> you uh, you really do look like a JV football coach. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's your call. I'm feeling pretty good about life. this is my Belichick outfit. I'm feeling pretty good about my preseason bet of Patriots under seven and a half wins. Okay. Not feeling great about my Giants over seven and a half wins. How many bets do you have going on at one time? Because it seems sure seems like a lot. You know what you know what fan, you know what FanDuel needs? You're right, Ben. I do have a bunch of bets going on at one time. The FanDuel FanDuel needs to have so when you're looking at your 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 phone and you see active bets, I don't want to see my futures bets. I don't want to have to scroll through my futures bets. I want them in a separate column. Okay. Those are the only bets I make anymore. I bet only like four teams to win the Super Bowl, the NBA finals every year, and that's it. You know, it's unbelievable. We're so different. You're a set it and for, you're a set it and forget it sort of an investor. <laughs> true. Yes, it is true, and you're doing. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Team parlays, and I just it. I had a bad run. I had a really bad run in the NFL season a year or two ago, and I just it soured me to the whole deal. Hello. I kept getting what screwed. Hope? What about delusion? Hope doesn't spring eternal. I just I was getting screwed on all of these picks, and I'm just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I've had enough, and kind of went away from it. Uh, all right, Derek Thompson tweeted, it's mostly cringe for middle-aged people to gawk at general changes in younger generations, but the anti-socialization of childhood in America is really a stunning thing to see all at once. So from 1976 through 2015 or so, we're looking at the number of people that have a driver's license, that have tried alcohol, that have ever dated, that work for pay. And these things, you might say this is social media. These things have all been in a downtrend since basically the mid nineties, I guess. Nineties, probably. No, it's it's accelerated and crashed. Uh, Ever dated, for example, is uh, alarming. It's an alarming crash. Uh, there's a, another chart that shows the percentage of eighth, tenth, and twelfth graders who spent an hour or more leisure time alone nearly every day, and that is going the opposite direction, as you might imagine. That's that's skyrocketing. That this, screens. Th- that, this that screens though. Yeah, and I think there's nothing we could do about it. Honestly, with screens and social media, I think I think this is the new normal. I saw, and everyone is going to get married in the future from dating apps. Isn't that I just where we're where we're heading? Yeah, I saw. Um, I was watching something on Instagram. It was nostalgia overload. It almost made me cry. I don't know why. It just I got emotional watching it. It was the introductory songs from from shows from the '80s. Full House, Family Matters. Who's you know the, the best one ever is, right? Growing Pains, Wonder Growing Years. Pains. Growing Pains is the best one ever. Growing Pains is terrific. How how weird was Charles in Charge? Was Scott Bayo basically an au pair? <laughs> that was kind of a bizarre. I mean, people just didn't. So, and who's thinking, the boss? How weird was that show, if you think about I was, it? The 1980s is such a weird time for pop. So I was thinking about this. I One of my, my favorite, all-time favorite Tom Hanks movie. If you asked me under Truth, Truth Serum, I'd say Money Pit, even though it probably should be big. Yeah, I've never Tom seen Hanks, it. he has his 1980s, so it's on Netflix. And I looked at it. Oh, it's on Tom Netflix. Hanks, Tom Hanks, one of our greatest actors ever. And right when you start the movie, I've never noticed this before. It says Steven Spielberg presents The Money Pit. So Steven Spielberg, executive produced, Tom Hanks starred, and it's a slapstick comedy about a, a husband and a wife who are building a home together. And it's it's totally 80s. It just cracked me up that. One of the greatest directors of all time, maybe the greatest, and one of the greatest actors of all time, 
in the 80s collaborated on a slapstick comedy that would be like a like a straight to DVD movie today. I got to see that. It's it's totally But anyway, just, just just watching these 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 uh songs, these intro songs from the 80s like thinking about how different life is. And I'm not saying life was better necessarily in the 80s, but some things were better. Now I'm a 90s baby. I was born in 85, but Okay. No, I Although I do I totally- remember I do remember growing up with a lot of boredom. I must say. Like there was definitely Oh yeah. Just just some sitting around looking out the window type stuff. Just like, oh, should I call I guess I'm just gonna call this person's house and see what they're doing. This is also why I've seen every movie from the eighties or nineties like twelve times, because USA, T- TNT, TBS, the summers, that was my babysitter. I just watched movies all the yeah. time. Um all right. I saw this the other night and I thought I was taking crazy pills. I, what was I watching? Uh I was flipping through, I think I was on ESPN. I'm, I've said before, I'm not a flipper, but I happen to be flipping. I came across Cornhole. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before. And it said it was on ESPN 8, The Ocho. <laughs> wasn't, that, wasn't that from uh, Dodgeball? Wasn't that a joke? Yes, I think. Did they turn this into a real thing? I think they made it kind of a joke and turned ESPN 2 into ESPN 8 to be. I like wink, wink? Of, yes. Uh, okay. Ben, I was in the supermarket yesterday with Logan. And... My wife told me to pick up a piece of salmon for her. So I waited on the on the line, you know, where you get the tickets. And I was thinking, how often how fresh is this food? There's four thousand pounds of prepared foods here. You know what I mean? Meatballs, chicken parm, this salad, that salad, whatever it is. How often does that turn over? And how would you even know if it's fresh or not? There's no way they do it every single day. There's just no way. They've got to have some sort of I, I have to think about that at the supermarket and liquor stores. Like with as much inventory as they're carrying, how do they ever make money? Yeah. In the Don't margins about the money-making so aspect of it. How do you know there should be, how do you know how, how old your food is that you're buying? Roll the dice. You're a gambler. You're rolling the dice. You play craps every time you buy salmon at the store. It's like a parlay. Are you a prepared food guy? We have a pretty good meat department at my local place. Yeah, it's not bad. That's that's not what I asked. That's not meat is not prepared food. You cook meat. I'm saying like, do you go to stores and get meals that are already made? Oh, occasionally like the Costco tacos are pretty good. They have like a kit, you know, that kind of thing. The the chicken Alfredo my kids like from there. You're not you're not understanding. There's not a. <laughs> I'm not talking about kits. I'm talking about you see the food that's already made. You go and buy it, and then you heat it up. Isn't that what this is? What I I feel like we're talking about the same thing. No, you're talking about a taco mm-hmm. kit. Give I'm me an example. That, I just did. A piece of t- salmon, teriyaki, teriyaki salmon. That's what I bought for my wife. Yeah, I'm saying at the meat department, it'll be like chicken. That's, it's, it'll be like a chicken kebab ready for you to go and you just got to cook it. Yeah. No, I'm saying not even. Now, what you're describing, yeah, if you go to a, a butcher, they'll have So you're saying the meat, salmon's already cooked? Yes. You, all you have to do is, is heat it up. All you have to do is microwave it. That's what I'm saying. Okay, prepared yeah, that sounds, foods, okay, not that, raw that sounds, prepared. Okay, that sounds kind of gross. I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, then no, I, w- I wouldn't do that, probably. Okay. And not not to judge my fellow Americans, but the people online, you know, a little on the heavy side. It's easier to eat bad than it is to eat good. That's a fact. Uh, all right, recommendations. Um, all right, I think I nailed this, not to brag. Apparently, this is from Barstool. Apparently, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is so bad that audience members walked out of test screenings. I said last week that was the absolute worst trailer I've ever seen in my life. Now, I am a trailer guy. 
I when whenever I see people say that trailer looks awful, I usually don't understand because I, I like all trailers for the most part. It's usually a bad sign though if the trailer looks bad or if it's a comedy and doesn't make you laugh. That's a bad sign. Yeah. So if the trailer looks bad, you know it's bad. Yeah. Uh, I was talking with with uh, my trainer the other day, as I do. Now my trainer, I hate working out. God, do I hate it. And I know that if I'm not paying this guy to watch me work out and say, yep, you're doing great. Like, you know, uh, uh, it sounds really creepy when you put it that way. I was thinking of, uh, <laughs> Chubb and Happy Gilmore. Okay. You know, when he's yeah. giving the lessons to the lady and he's just <laughs> reading. Anyway, I, I, I really do hate working out, but so we, 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 we schmooze about movies and whatnot. And so this telling- is where we're different. You get the emotional high from gambling and hate working out. I get the, whatever it's called, the endorphins, whatever you get from working out, I get that. And like, I, I need, my body needs that at a certain point. Like I, I feel better after I work out. Like I enjoy working out. Yeah. I, I hate every minute of it. We were talking about the recruit. I don't know how that came up, but we were both like, oh, what a great movie. Great movie. I love, I love that movie. I've great seen that mo- movie 10 times. Great movie. I saw it in the theaters. Factually, not, not Field of Dreams, but I, I know I saw this in Florida with my dad, as a matter of fact. Got a forty-three percent from the critics and a fifty-eight from the audience. What the hell is going on? If you haven't, if you haven't, I mean, those are horrible numbers. If you haven't seen the recruit, put that right at the top of your list. It's if about, that movie was released this year, it would be like a top ten movie of the year. Totally. Colin Farrell goes to the was it the the farm? Is that what yeah, they the call CIA? it? CIA. Yeah. And uh, and Al Pacino is is the uh, trainer, for lack of a Brid- better word. Tom Brady's ex, Bridget Moynihan, is in it. It's a good movie. Hell of a movie. Uh, all right, this this blew my face off. With $633 million domestically, Barbie has now outgrossed, this is from Eric Davis, Barbie has now outgrossed the first two Avengers films in every Star Wars film, except for The Force Awakens. Wow. Greta Gerwig's film has also outgrossed every single DC film to date. Watch The Flash, that sucked. I didn't like it. Isn't that crazy? Barbie yeah. did yes. beat a, the first two impressive. Avengers in every Star Wars film? It's another brand kind of thing. I'm going to watch it. Are you going to watch it? I haven't watched it yet. No, I, I'll, I'll see it eventually. I didn't really care to go see it in the theater, but I'll, I'll watch it eventually. All right. So I watched this movie literally called Hashtag Chad Gets the Axe. Now, where do, you, where do you find this stuff? Uh, I'll tell you exactly where I find this stuff. I scroll on Prime for new rentals, and I judged a book by its cover, and I went to uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Got 100% from the critics. Now, only eight reviews, but still. And a 75% from the audience. And then I read, then I read the, the description. Four social media influencers live stream their trip to Devil's Manor, the former home of a satanic cult. But things start to go wrong. As the violence increases, so do the views. Wow. Okay. And I got to say, am I recommending this? Not necessarily. But if this sounds good to you, it was good. It was actually good. It was scary. If this sounds good to you, punch yourself in the face, please. It, it was uh, scary. It was it, it was scary. It was effective. Right. I don't know how, after seeing hundreds of these movies, you still get scared. Not only do I get scared, but I'll tell you this. I even, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I get scared. I guess that's the point. I Sometimes I'll mute it because I get too scared. The, I don't know. I just, I, I watch these movies and I'm like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. That's interesting. And that's, it doesn't do anything for me. All right. So they had a Bronx tale on rewatchables last week. So I rewatched that. And then it got me thinking that I started wise guy by Nicholas Pelegi. Wait, who, I want to hear your take on Bronx tale. Oh, it, I, I, I hadn't seen it in 20 years. Probably. I, I thought it aged great. It's like a Netflix movie in the sense that like it, it's good, but in a better it's not, it's director's hands, fellas. like De Niro directed it. It, it, it could have been great. 
and it wasn't, but it was definitely good. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tier below like Casino and Goodfellas and all those, but I, I still like it. Uh, so it reminded me that I started Wise Guy, which was the book that Goodfellas is, is based on. I thought, I, I got to pick that. I read like 10% of it on my Kindle and I just forgot about it. So I started reading it again. And it's just crazy to me. So the 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 stuff, remember in the movie where they they hijacked the Air, the, uh, Air France heist. flight or whatever? Yeah. But they made it sound like these guys would go to Newark Airport and that was like, this was their income. They hijacked like two to three shipments a day. And they owned the union guys, so they couldn't get the truckers fired. And like that's how these guys lived. They Security? would just steal. They would You're just steal. Yeah, they would just steal stuff all the time. And it was like that was their job, basically, just to steal stuff. And they talked about how the Jimmy character, who De Niro's ba- uh, who De Niro plays in the movie, they said he he, he had a really bad background. He, he was foster homes and sexually abused, and you can kind of almost understand how this guy became a a serial murderer. But they said he loved stealing so much. He said you could offer him a billion dollars to stop stealing. He would say no, but then he'd figure out a way to steal the billion dollars from you. That's how much he loves stealing. Anyway, it's, it's the, the book uh, makes me feel like the author of the book does not get enough credit for how good the movie is. Because he movie. told uh, two parenting things. I watched Welcome to Wrexham came back again. I think I've watched the first three episodes. It's just as good as the first season. I don't and know. A, Could you bring me back up to speed? I don't know what that is. It's the one where Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney buy a team, uh, you're a soccer team. Fan. Forgot about that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so good. And it's not even just those two guys. Like the whole second episode is a parenting one about children with disabilities. And it was just so well done and like kind of heavy. It was but wait, is a, it it's not it's not a show. It's not a it's not it's 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 based on reality, right? It's a reality show. And they uh-huh. also they they highlight the fans of the show, the of the team and the people in the town, and it's just really, really well done. And then Matthew McConaughey was on Smartless last week, and they did a really long thing about parenting and being a father. And I thought like their whole, they're all kind of just sharing how they think about parenting. And I, I love kind of hearing about that stuff and they, their kids are a little older than mine. Uh, I thought it was really well done. Good one. As good as hashtag Chad gets the X. Not quite. Maybe McConaughey would have been in that before he got dazed and confused. you I feel like your movie recommendations are just like, Th- you just, that's not a recommendation. I'm just telling you what I watched. I know, but the stuff that you're watching is just, it's, it's, there's so many horror movies these days. I feel like you've just, you've hit them all and uh, they're getting worse and worse. Uh, dude, Talk To Me was, was excellent. Okay. Excellent. The, the, the worst part about it is I know there's people who listen to our show who are on board with you with these movies. You guys Wait, are all I'm not sickos. The only one. You're all sickos. Uh, so here's, here's, here's the top box office movies this weekend. The Nun 2, Expendables 4, A Haunting in Venice, The Equalizer 3, Barbie, my Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, It Lives Inside, Dumb Money, Blue Beetle. I mean, this is not a great, a this beat. is not a great slate of movies. All right. Animalspiritspod at gmail.com. See you next time. Chad gets the axe. <laughs>